Surely you're joking, Mr. Feynman. By Richard P. Feynman. Continued. Cassette 5, Side 1. The performers were on a circuit that went through Amarillo and a lot of other places in Texas and God knows where else. There was also a permanent singer who was at the nightclub, whose name was Tamara. Every time a new group of performers came to the club, Tamara would introduce me to one of the girls from the group. The girl would come and sit down with me at my table. I would buy her a drink, and we'd talk. Of course, I would have liked to do more than just talk, but there was always something the matter at the last minute. So I could never understand why Tamara always went to the trouble of introducing me to all these nice girls, and then, even though things would start out all right, I would always end up buying drinks, spending the evening talking, but that was it. My friend, who didn't have the advantage of Tamara's introductions, wasn't getting anywhere either. We were both clunks. After a few weeks of different shows and different girls, a new show came, and as usual, Tamara introduced me to a girl from the group, and we went through the usual thing. I'm buying her drinks, we're talking, and she's being very nice. She went and did her show, and afterwards she came to me at my table, and I felt pretty good. People would look around and think, What's he got that makes this girl come to him? But then, at some stage near the close of the evening, she said something that by this time I had heard many times before. I'd like to have you come over to my room tonight, but we're having a party, so perhaps tomorrow night. And I knew what this perhaps tomorrow night meant. Nothing. Well, I noticed throughout the evening that this girl, her name was Gloria, talked quite often with the master of ceremonies during the show and on her way to and from the ladies' room. So one time, when she was in the ladies' room and the master of ceremonies happened to be walking near my table, I impulsively took a guess and said to him, Your wife is a very nice woman. He said, Yes, thank you. And we started to talk a little. He figured she had told me, and when Gloria returned, she figured he had told me. So they both talked to me a little bit and invited me to go over to their place that night after the bar closed. At two o'clock in the morning, I went over to their motel with them. There wasn't any party, of course, and we talked a long time. They showed me a photo album with pictures of Gloria when her husband first met her in Iowa, a corn-fed, rather fattish-looking woman, then other pictures of her as she reduced, and now she looked really nifty. He had taught her all kinds of stuff, but he couldn't read or write, which was especially interesting because he had the job, as master of ceremonies, of reading the names of the acts and the performers who were in the amateur contest. And I hadn't even noticed that he couldn't read what he was reading. The next night I saw what they did. While she was bringing a person on or off the stage, she glanced at the slip of paper in his hand and whispered the names of the next performers and the title of the act to him as she went by. They were a very interesting, friendly couple, and we had many interesting conversations. I recalled how we had met, and I asked them why Tamara was always introducing the new girls to me. Gloria replied, When Tamara was about to introduce me to you, she said, Now I'm going to introduce you to the real spender around here. I had to think a moment before I realized that the $16 bottle of champagne, but with such a vigorous and misunderstood never-mind, turned out to be a good investment. I apparently had the reputation of being some kind of eccentric, who always came in not dressed up, not with a neat suit, but always ready to spend lots of money on the girls. Eventually, I told them that I was struck by something, 
I'm fairly intelligent, I said, but probably only about physics. But in that bar there are lots of intelligent guys, oil guys, mineral guys, important businessmen and so forth, and all the time they're buying the girls' drinks, and they get nothing for it. By this time I had deduced that nobody else was getting anything out of all those drinks either. How is it possible, I asked, that an intelligent guy can be such a goddamn fool when he gets into a bar? The master said, This I know all about. I know exactly how it all works. I will give you lessons, so that hereafter you can get something from a girl in a bar like this. But before I give you the lessons, I must demonstrate that I really know what I'm talking about. So to do that, Gloria will get a man to buy you a champagne cocktail. I say, okay, though I'm thinking, how the hell are they going to do it? The master continued, now you must do exactly as we tell you. Tomorrow night you should sit some distance from Gloria in the bar, and when she gives you a sign, all you have to do is walk by. Yes, says Gloria, it'll be easy. The next night I go to the bar and sit in the corner, where I can keep my eye on Gloria from a distance. After a while, sure enough, there's some guy sitting with her. And after a little while longer, the guy's happy, and Gloria gives me a wink. I get up and nonchalantly saunter by. Just as I'm passing, Gloria turns around and says in a real friendly and bright voice, Oh, hi, Dick. When did you get back in town? Where have you been? At this moment, the guy turns around to see who this dick is, and I can see in his eyes something I understand completely, since I have been in that position so often myself. First look. Uh-oh. Competition coming up. He's going to take her away from me after I bought her a drink. What's going to happen? Next look. No. It's just a casual friend. They seem to know each other from some time back. I could see all this. I could read it on his face. I knew exactly what he was going through. Gloria turns to him and says, Jim, I'd like you to meet an old friend of mine, Dick Feynman. Next look. I know what I'll do. I'll be kind to this guy so that you'll like me more. Jim turns to me and says, Hi, Dick. How about a drink? Fine, I say. What'll you have? Whatever she's having. Bartender? Another champagne cocktail, please. So it was easy. There was nothing to it. That night after the bar closed, I went again over to the master and Gloria's motel. They were laughing and smiling, happy with how it worked out. All right, I said. I'm absolutely convinced that you two know exactly what you're talking about. Now, what about the lessons? Okay, he says. The whole principle is this. The guy wants to be a gentleman. He doesn't want to be thought of as impolite, crude, or especially a cheapskate. As long as the girl knows the guy's motive so well, it's easy to steer him in the direction she wants him to go. Therefore, he continued, under no circumstances be a gentleman. You must disrespect the girls. Furthermore, the very first rule is don't buy a girl anything, not even a package of cigarettes, until you've asked her if she'll sleep with you and you're convinced that she will, and that she's not lying. Uh, you mean you don't, uh, you just ask them? Okay, he says, I know this is your first lesson, and it may be hard for you to be so blunt, 
so you might buy her one thing, just one little something, before you ask. But on the other hand, it will only make it more difficult. Well, someone only has to give me the principle, and I get the idea. All during the next day, I built up my psychology differently. I adopted the attitude that those bar girls are all bitches, that they aren't worth anything, and all they're in there for is to get you to buy them a drink, and they're not going to give you a goddamn thing. I'm not going to be a gentleman to such worthless bitches, and so on. I learned it till it was automatic. Then, that night, I was ready to try it out. I go into the bar as usual, and right away my friend says, Hey, Dick, where do you see the girl I got tonight? She had to go change her clothes, but she's coming right back. Yeah, yeah, I say, unimpressed. I sit at another table to watch the show. My friend's girl comes in just as the show starts, and I'm thinking, I don't give a damn how pretty she is. All she's doing is getting him to buy her drinks, and she's going to give him nothing. After the first act, my friend says, Hey, Dick, I want you to meet Anne. Anne, this is a good friend of mine, Dick Feynman. I say hi and keep looking at the show. A few moments later, Anne says to me, Why don't you come and sit at the table here with us? I think to myself, Typical bitch. He's buying her drinks, and she's inviting somebody else to the table. I say, I can see fine from here. A little while later, a lieutenant from the military base nearby comes in dressed in a nice uniform. It isn't long before we notice that Anne is sitting over on the other side of the bar with the lieutenant. Later that evening, I'm sitting at the bar, Anne is dancing with the lieutenant, and when the lieutenant's back is toward me and she's facing me, she smiles very pleasantly to me. I think again, some bitch. Now she's doing this trick on the lieutenant even. Then I get a good idea. I don't look at her until the lieutenant can also see me. And then I smile back at her. So the lieutenant will know what's going on. So her trick didn't work for long. A few minutes later, she's not with the lieutenant anymore, but asking the bartender for her coat and handbag, saying in a loud, obvious voice, I'd like to go for a walk. Does anybody want to go for a walk with me? I think to myself, you can keep saying no and pushing them off, but you can't do it permanently, or you won't get anywhere. There comes a time when you have to go along. So I say coolly, I'll walk with you. So we go out. We walk down the street a few blocks and see a cafe, and she says, I've got an idea. Let's get some coffee and sandwiches and go over to my place and eat them. The idea sounds pretty good. So we go into the cafe and she orders three coffees and three sandwiches, and I pay for them. As we're going out of the cafe, I think to myself, Something's wrong. Too many sandwiches. On the way to her motel, she says, You know, I won't have time to eat these sandwiches with you because a lieutenant is coming over. I think to myself, See? I flunked. A master gave me a lesson on what to do when I flunked. I bought her one dollar and ten cents worth of sandwiches and hadn't asked her anything, and now I know I'm going to get nothing. I have to recover, if only for the pride of my teacher. I stop suddenly and I say to her, you are worse than a whore. What do you mean? You got me to buy these sandwiches, and what am I going to get for it? Nothing. Well, you cheapskate, she says, if that's the way you feel, I'll pay you back for the sandwiches. I called her bluff. Pay me back, then. She was astonished. She reached into her pocketbook, 
took out the little bit of money that she had and gave it to me. I took my sandwich and coffee and went off. After I was through eating, I went back to the bar to report to the master. I explained everything and told him I was sorry that I flunked, but I tried to recover. He said very calmly, It's okay, Dick. It's all right. Since you ended up not buying her anything, she's going to sleep with you tonight. What? That's right, he said confidently. She's going to sleep with you. I know that. But she isn't even here. She's at her place with the loo. It's all right. Two o'clock comes around. The bar closes, and Anne hasn't appeared. I ask the master and his wife if I can come over to their place again. They say sure. Just as we're coming out of the bar, here comes Anne, running across Route 66 toward me. She puts her arm in mine and says, Come on, let's go over to my place. The master was right, so the lesson was terrific. When I was back at Cornell in the fall, I was dancing with the sister of a grad student who was visiting from Virginia. She was very nice, and suddenly I got this idea. Let's go to a bar and have a drink, I said. On the way to the bar, I was working up nerve to try the master's lesson on an ordinary girl. After all, you don't feel so bad disrespecting a bar girl who's trying to get you to buy her drinks. But a nice, ordinary, southern girl? We went into the bar, and before I sat down, I said, Listen, before I buy you a drink, I want to know one thing. Will you sleep with me tonight? Yes. So it worked even with an ordinary girl. But no matter how effective the lesson was, I never really used it after that. I didn't enjoy doing it that way. But it was interesting to know that things worked much differently from how I was brought up. Lucky Numbers One day at Princeton I was sitting in the lounge and overheard some mathematicians talking about the series for e to the x, which is 1 plus x plus x squared over 2 factorial plus x cubed over 3 factorial. Each term you get by multiplying the preceding term by x and dividing by the next number. For example, to get the next term after x to the fourth over 4 factorial, you multiply that term by x and divide by 5. It's very simple. When I was a kid, I was excited by series and had played with this thing. I had computed E using that series and had seen how quickly the new terms became very small. I mumbled something about how it was easy to calculate E to any power using that series. You just substitute the power for x. Oh, yeah, they said. Well, then. What's e to the 3.3, said some joker. I think it was Tukey. I say, that's easy. It's 27.11. Tukey knows it isn't so easy to compute all that in your head. Hey, how do you do that? Another guy says, you know, Feynman, he's just faking it. It's not really right. They go to get a table, and while they're doing that, I put on a few more figures. 27.1126, I say. They find it in the table. It's right. But how do you do it? I just summed the series. Nobody can sum the series that fast. You must just happen to know that one. How about e to the three? Look, I say, it's hard work. Only one a day. Ha! It's a fake, they say happily. All right, I say. It's 20.085. They look in the book as I put a few more figures on. They're all excited now because I got another one right. 
Here are these great mathematicians of the day, puzzled at how I can compute e to any power. One of them says, he just can't be substituting and summing. It's too hard. There's some trick. You couldn't do just any old number like e to the 1.4. I say, it's hard work, but for you, okay. It's 4.05. As they're looking it up, I put on a few more digits and say, and that's the last one for the day, and walk out. What happened was this. I happened to know three numbers. The logarithm of 10 to the base e, needed to convert numbers from base 10 to base e, which is 2.3026. So I knew that e to the 2.3 is very close to 10. And because of radioactivity, mean life and half-life, I knew the log of 2 to the base e, which is 0.69315. So I also knew that e to the 0.7 is nearly equal to 2. I also knew e to the 1, which is 2.71828. The first number they gave me was e to the 3.3, which is e to the 2.3, 10 times e, or 27.18. While they were sweating about how I was doing it, I was correcting for the extra, 0 0.0026. 2.3026 is a little high. I knew I couldn't do another one. That was sheer luck. But then the guy said e to the 3. That's e to the 2.3 times e to the 0.7, or 10 times 2. So I knew it was 20-something. And while they were worrying how I did it, I adjusted for the 0.693. Now I was sure I couldn't do another one because the last one was again by sheer luck. But the guy said e to the 1.4, which is e to the 0.7 times itself. So all I had to do was fix up 4 a little bit. They never did figure out how I did it. When I was at Los Alamos, I found out that Hans Beta was absolutely top-notch at calculating. For example, one time we were putting some numbers into a formula and got to 48 squared. I reached for the Marchant calculator and he says, that's uh, 2,300. I begin to push the buttons, and he says, If you want it exactly, it's 2,304. The machine says 2,304. Gee, that's pretty remarkable, I say. Don't you know how to square numbers near 50, he says? You square 50, that's 2,500, and subtract 100 times the difference of your number from 50. In this case, it's 2 so you have 2,300. If you want the correction, square the difference and add it on. That makes 2,304. A few minutes later, we need to take the cube root of 2.5. Now, to take cube roots on the marchant, you had to use a table for the first approximation. I open the drawer to get the table. It takes a little longer this time, and he says, it's about 1.35. I try it out on the marchant, and it's right. How did you do that one, I ask? Do you have a secret for taking cube roots of numbers? Oh, he says, the log of two and a half is so-and-so. Now one-third of that log is between the logs of 1.3, which is this, and 1.4, which is that. So I interpolated. So I found out something. First, he knows the log tables. Second, the amount of arithmetic he did to make the interpolation alone would have taken me longer to do than reach for the table and punch the buttons on the calculator. I was very impressed. After that, I tried to do those things. I memorized a few logs and began to notice things. For instance, 
If somebody says, "What is twenty-eight squared?" you notice that the square root of two is one point four, and twenty-eight is twenty times one point four. So the square of twenty-eight must be around four hundred times two, or eight hundred. If somebody comes along and wants to divide one by one point seven three, you can tell them immediately that it's point five seven seven, because you notice that one point seven three is nearly the square root of three. So one over one point seven three must be one third of the square root of three, and if it's one over one point seven five, that's equal to the inverse of seven over four, and you've memorized the repeating decimals for sevenths. Point five seven one four two eight. We had a lot of fun trying to do arithmetic fast by tricks with Hans. It was very rare that I'd see something he didn't see and beat him to the answer. And he'd laugh his hearty laugh when I'd get one. He was nearly always able to get the answer to any problem within a percent. It was easy for him. Every number was near something he knew. One day I was feeling my oats. It was lunchtime in the technical area, and I don't know how I got the idea, but I announced, "I can work out in sixty seconds the answer to any problem that anybody can state in ten seconds to ten percent." People started giving me problems they thought were difficult, such as integrating a function like one over parentheses one plus x to the fourth closed parentheses, which hardly changed over the range they gave me. The hardest one somebody gave me was the binomial coefficient of x to the tenth in parentheses one plus x closed parentheses to the twentieth. I got that just in time. They were all giving me problems, and I was feeling great when Paul Olam walked by in the hall. Paul had worked with me for a while at Princeton before coming out to Los Alamos, and he was always cleverer than I was. For instance, one day I was absent-mindedly playing with one of those measuring tapes that snap back into your hand when you push a button. The tape would always slap over and hit my hand, and it hurt a little bit. "Geez!" I exclaimed, "What a dope I am! I keep playing with this thing, and it hurts me every time." He said, "You don't hold it right," and took the damn thing, pulled out the tape, pushed the button. And it came right back, no hurt. Wow, how do you do that? I exclaimed. Figure it out. For the next two weeks, I'm walking all around Princeton, snapping this tape back until my hand is absolutely raw. Finally, I can't take it any longer. Paul, I give up. How the hell do you hold it so it doesn't hurt? Who says it doesn't hurt? It hurts me too. Felt so stupid. He had gotten me to go around and hurt my hand for two weeks. So Paul is walking past the lunch place, and these guys are all excited. Hey, Paul! They call out. Feynman's terrific. We give him a problem that can be stated in ten seconds, and in a minute he gets the answer to ten percent. Why don't you give him one? Without hardly stopping, he says, "The tangent of ten to the hundredth." I was sunk. You have to divide by pi to one hundred decimal places. It was hopeless. One time I boasted, "I can do by other methods any integral anybody else needs contour integration to do." So Paul puts up this tremendous damn integral he had obtained by starting out with a complex function that he knew the answer to, taking out the real part of it and leaving only the complex part. He had unwrapped it so it was only possible by contour integration. He was always deflating me like that. He was a very smart fellow. The first time I was in Brazil, I was eating a noon meal at I don't know what time. 
I was always in the restaurants at the wrong time, and I was the only customer in the place. I was eating rice with steak, which I loved, and there were about four waiters standing around. A Japanese man came into the restaurant. I had seen him before wandering around. He was trying to sell abacuses. He started to talk to the waiters and challenged them. He said he could add numbers faster than any of them could do. The waiters didn't want to lose face, so they said, Yeah, yeah, why don't you go over and challenge the customer over there? The man came over. I protested, but I don't speak Portuguese well. The waiters laughed. The numbers are easy, they said. They brought me a pencil and paper. The man asked a waiter to call out some numbers to add. He beat me hollow, because while I was writing the numbers down, he was already adding them as he went along. I suggested that the waiter write down two identical lists of numbers and hand them to us at the same time. It didn't make much difference. He still beat me by quite a bit. However, the man got a little bit excited. He wanted to prove himself some more. Multiplicação, he said. Somebody wrote down a problem. He beat me again, but not by much, because I'm pretty good at products. The man then made a mistake. He proposed we go on to division. What he didn't realize was, the harder the problem, the better chance I had. We both did a long division problem. It was a tie. This bothered the hell out of the Japanese man, because he was apparently very well trained on the abacus, and here he was almost beaten by this customer in a restaurant. Ryosh kubikos, he says, with a vengeance. Cube roots. He wants to do cube roots by arithmetic. It's hard to find a more difficult fundamental problem in arithmetic. It must have been his top-notch exercise in abacus land. He writes a number on some paper, any old number, and I still remember it. 1729.03. He starts working on it, mumbling and grumbling. He's working like a demon. He's pouring away, doing this cube root. Meanwhile, I'm just sitting there. One of the waiters says, What are you doing? I point to my head. Thinking, I say. I write down 12 on the paper. After a while, I've got 12.002. The man with the abacus wipes the sweat off his forehead. 12, he says. Oh no, I say. More digits. More digits. I know that in taking a cube root by arithmetic, each new digit is even more work than the one before. It's a hard job. He buries himself again, grunting, while I add on two more digits. He finally lifts his head to say, 12.0. The waiters are all excited and happy. They tell the man, look, he does it only by thinking, and you need an abacus. He's got more digits. He was completely washed out and left humiliated. The waiters congratulated each other. How did the customer beat the abacus? The number was 1729.03. I happen to know that a cubic foot contains 1728 cubic inches, so the answer is a tiny bit more than 12. The excess, 1.03, is only one part in nearly 2,000, and I had learned in calculus that for small fractions, the cube root's excess is one-third of the number's excess. So all I had to do was find the fraction, 1 over 1728, and multiply by 4, divide by 3, and multiply by 12. So I was able to pull out a whole lot of digits that way. 
A few weeks later, the man came into the cocktail lounge of the hotel I was staying at. He recognized me and came over. Tell me, he said, how were you able to do that cube root problem so fast? I started to explain that it was an approximate method and had to do with the percentage of error. Suppose you had given me 28. Now the cube root of 27 is 3. He picks up his abacus. Zzzz. Oh, yes, he says. I realized something. He doesn't know numbers. With the abacus, you don't have to memorize a lot of arithmetic combinations. All you have to do is learn how to push the little beads up and down. You don't have to memorize 9 plus 7 equals 16. You just know that when you add 9, you push a 10's bead up and pull a 1's bead down. So we're slower at basic arithmetic, but we know numbers. Furthermore, the whole idea of an approximate method was beyond him, even though a cube root often cannot be computed exactly by any method. So I never could teach him how I did cube roots, or explain how lucky I was that he happened to choose 1729.03. O americano, otra vez. One time I picked up a hitchhiker, who told me how interesting South America was, and that I ought to go there. I complained that the language is different, but he said, just go ahead and learn it. It's no big problem. So I thought, that's a good idea. I'll go to South America. Cornell had some foreign language classes which followed a method used during the war, in which small groups of about ten students and one native speaker speak only the foreign language, nothing else. Since I was a rather young-looking professor there at Cornell, I decided to take the class as if I were a regular student. And since I didn't know yet where I was going to end up in South America, I decided to take Spanish, because the great majority of the countries there speak Spanish. So when it was time to register for the class, we were standing outside, ready to go into the classroom, when this pneumatic blonde came along. You know how once in a while you get this feeling? Wow! She looked terrific. I said to myself, Maybe she's going to be in the Spanish class. That'll be great. But no, she walked into the Portuguese class. So I figured, what the hell? I might as well learn Portuguese. I started walking right after her when this Anglo-Saxon attitude that I have said, no, that's not a good reason to decide which language to speak. So I went back and signed up for the Spanish class, to my utter regret. Sometime later, I was at a physics society meeting in New York, and I found myself sitting next to Jaime Tiomno from Brazil, and he asked, What are you going to do next summer? I'm thinking of visiting South America. Oh, why don't you come to Brazil? I'll get a position for you at the Center for Physical Research. So now I had to convert all that Spanish into Portuguese. I found a Portuguese graduate student at Cornell, and twice a week he gave me lessons, so I was able to alter what I had learned. On the plane to Brazil, I started out sitting next to a guy from Colombia who spoke only Spanish, so I wouldn't talk to him because I didn't want to get confused again. But sitting in front of me were two guys who were talking Portuguese. I had never heard real Portuguese. I had only had this teacher who had talked very slowly and clearly. So here are these two guys talking a blue streak, brrrata, barrata, and I can't even hear the word I or the word for the or anything. Finally, 
When we made a refueling stop in Trinidad, I went up to the two fellows and said very slowly in Portuguese, or what I thought was Portuguese, Excuse me, can you understand what I am saying to you now? Pois now, pork now. Sure, why not, they replied. So I explained as best I could that I had been learning Portuguese for some months now, but I had never heard it spoken in conversation, and I was listening to them on the airplane, but couldn't understand a word they were saying. Oh, they said with a laugh, now a português, e ladao judio. What they were speaking was to Portuguese, as Yiddish is to German. So you can imagine a guy who's been studying German sitting behind two guys talking Yiddish, trying to figure out what's the matter. It's obviously German, but it doesn't work. He must not have learned German very well. When we got back on the plane, they pointed out another man who did speak Portuguese, so I sat next to him. He had been studying neurosurgery in Maryland, so it was very easy to talk with him, as long as it was about cirurgia neural ou cerebral and other such complicated things. The long words are actually quite easy to translate into Portuguese, because the only difference is their endings. Shun, in English, is sao in Portuguese. Li is mente, and so on. But when he looked out the window and said something simple, I was lost. I couldn't decipher. The sky is blue. I got off the plane in Recife. The Brazilian government was going to pay the part from Recife to Rio, and was met by the father-in-law of Cesar Lattice, who was the director of the Center for Physical Research in Rio, his wife, and another man. As the men were getting off my luggage, the lady started talking to me in Portuguese. You speak Portuguese? How nice! How was it that you learned Portuguese? I replied slowly, with great effort. First, I started to learn Spanish. Then, I discovered I was going to Brazil. Now, I wanted to say, so I learned Portuguese. But I couldn't think of the word for so. I knew how to make big words, though, so I finished the sentence like this. Consequentemente, aprendi português. When the two men came back with the baggage, she said, Oh, he speaks Portuguese, and with such wonderful words. Consequentemente. Then, an announcement came over the loudspeaker. The flight to Rio was cancelled, and there wouldn't be another one till next Tuesday. And I had to be in Rio on Monday at the latest. I got all upset. Maybe there's a cargo plane. I'll travel in a cargo plane, I said. Professor, they said. It's really quite nice here in Recife. We'll show you around. Why don't you relax? You're in Brazil. That evening I went for a walk in town and came upon a small crowd of people standing around a great big rectangular hole in the road. It had been dug for sewer pipes or something, and there, sitting exactly in the hole, was a car. It was marvelous. It fitted absolutely perfectly, with its roof level with the road. The workmen hadn't bothered to put up any signs at the end of the day, and the guy had simply driven into it. I noticed a difference. When we dig a hole, there'd be all kinds of detour signs and flashing lights to protect us. There, they dig the hole, and when they're finished for the day, they just leave. Anyway, Recife was a nice town, and I did wait until next Tuesday to fly to Rio. When I got to Rio, I met Cesar Lattice. 
The National TV Network wanted to make some pictures of our meeting, so they started filming, but without any sound. The cameraman said, Act as if you're talking. Say something. Anything. So let us ask me, Have you found a sleeping dictionary yet? That night, Brazilian TV audiences saw the director of the Center for Physical Research welcome the visiting professor from the United States. But little did they know that the subject of their conversation was finding a girl to spend the night with. When I got to the center, we had to decide when I would give my lectures, in the morning or afternoon. Lattice said, The students prefer the afternoon, so let's have them in the afternoon. But the beach is nice in the afternoon, so why don't you give the lectures in the morning, so you can enjoy the beach in the afternoon? But you said the students prefer to have them in the afternoon. Don't worry about that. Do what's most convenient for you. Enjoy the beach in the afternoon. So I learned how to look at life in a way that's different from the way it is where I come from. First, they weren't in the same hurry that I was. And second, if it's better for you, never mind. So I gave the lectures in the morning and enjoyed the beach in the afternoon. And had I learned that lesson earlier, I would have learned Portuguese in the first place, instead of Spanish. I thought at first that I would give my lectures in English, but I noticed something. When the students were explaining something to me in Portuguese, I couldn't understand it very well, even though I knew a certain amount of Portuguese. It was not exactly clear to me whether they had said increase or decrease, or not increase or not decrease, or decrease slowly. But when they struggled with English, they say up or doon, and I knew which way it was, even though the pronunciation was lousy and the grammar was all screwed up. So I realized that if I was going to talk to them and try to teach them, it would be better for me to talk in Portuguese, poor as it was. It would be easier for them to understand. During that first time in Brazil, which lasted six weeks, I was invited to give a talk at the Brazilian Academy of Sciences about some work in quantum electrodynamics that I had just done. I thought I would give the talk in Portuguese, and two students at the center said they would help me with it. I began by writing out my talk in absolutely lousy Portuguese. I wrote it myself, because if they had written it, there would be too many words I didn't know and couldn't pronounce correctly. So I wrote it, and they fixed up all the grammar, fixed up the words and made it nice, but it was still at the level that I could read easily and know more or less what I was saying. They practiced with me to get the pronunciations absolutely right. The de should be between de and de. It had to be just so. I got to the Brazilian Academy of Sciences meeting, and the first speaker, a chemist, got up and gave his talk. In English. Was he trying to be polite, or what? I couldn't understand what he was saying because his pronunciation was so bad, but maybe everybody had the same accent so they could understand him. I don't know. Then the next guy gets up and gives his talk in English. When it was my turn, I got up and said, I'm sorry, I hadn't realized that the official language of the Brazilian Academy of Sciences was English, and therefore I did not prepare my talk in English. So please excuse me, but I'm going to have to give it in Portuguese. So I read the thing, and everybody was very pleased with it. The next guy to get up said, Following the example of my colleague from the United States, I also will give my talk in Portuguese. So for all I know, I changed the tradition of what language is used in the Brazilian Academy of Sciences. Some years later, 
I met a man from Brazil who quoted to me the exact sentences I had used at the beginning of my talk to the Academy. So apparently, it made quite an impression on them. But the language was always difficult for me, and I kept working on it all the time, reading the newspaper and so on. I kept on giving my lectures in Portuguese, what I call Feynman's Portuguese, which I knew couldn't be the same as real Portuguese, because I could understand what I was saying, while I couldn't understand what the people in the street were saying. Because I liked it so much that first time in Brazil, I went again a year later, this time for ten months. This time I lectured at the University of Rio, which was supposed to pay me, but they never did, so the center kept giving me the money I was supposed to get from the university. I finally ended up staying in a hotel right on the beach at Copacabana, called the Miramar. For a while, I had a room on the 13th floor, where I could look out the window at the ocean and watch the girls on the beach. It turned out that this hotel was the one that the airline pilots and the stewardesses from Pan American Airlines stayed at when they would lay over, a term that always bothered me a little bit. Their rooms were always on the fourth floor, and late at night there would often be a certain amount of sheepish sneaking up and down in the elevator. One time I went away for a few weeks on a trip, and when I came back the manager told me he had to book my room to somebody else, since it was the last available empty room and that he had moved my stuff to a new room. It was a room right over the kitchen that people usually didn't stay in very long. The manager must have figured that I was the only guy who would see the advantages of that room sufficiently clearly that I would tolerate the smells and not complain. I didn't complain. It was on the fourth floor, near the stewardesses. It saved a lot of problems. The people from the airlines were somewhat bored with their lives, strangely enough, and at night they would often go to bars to drink. I liked them all, and in order to be sociable, I would go with them to the bar to have a few drinks, several nights a week. One day, about 3.30 in the afternoon, I was walking along the sidewalk opposite the beach at Copacabana past a bar. I suddenly got this tremendous strong feeling. That's just what I want. That'll fit just right. I just love to have a drink right now. I started to walk into the bar, and I suddenly thought to myself, Wait a minute. It's the middle of the afternoon. There's nobody here. There's no social reason to drink. Why do you have such a terribly strong feeling that you have to have a drink? And I got scared. I never drank ever again since then. I suppose I really wasn't in any danger, because I found it very easy to stop. But that strong feeling that I didn't understand frightened me. You see... I get such fun out of thinking that I don't want to destroy this most pleasant machine that makes life such a big kick. It's the same reason that later on I was reluctant to try experiments with LSD in spite of my curiosity about hallucinations. Near the end of that year in Brazil, I took one of the air hostesses, a very lovely girl with braids, to the museum. As we went through the Egyptian section, I found myself telling her things like, the wings on the sarcophagus mean such and such, and in these vases they used to put the entrails, and around the corner there ought to be a so-and-so. And I thought to myself, you know where you learned all that stuff? From Mary Lou. And I got lonely for her. I met Mary Lou at Cornell, and later, when I came to Pasadena, I found that she had come to Westwood nearby. I liked her for a while, but we used to argue a bit. Finally we decided it was hopeless, and we separated. 
But after a year of taking out these air hostesses and not really getting anywhere, I was frustrated. So when I was telling this girl all these things, I thought Mary Lou really was quite wonderful, and we shouldn't have had all those arguments. I wrote a letter to her and proposed. Somebody who's wise could have told me that was dangerous. When you're away and you've got nothing but paper, and you're feeling lonely, you remember all the good things and you can't remember the reasons you had the arguments. And it didn't work out. The argument started again right away, and the marriage lasted for only two years. There was a man at the U.S. Embassy who knew I liked samba music. I think I told him that when I had been in Brazil the first time, I had heard a samba band practicing in the street, and I wanted to learn more about Brazilian music. He said a small group called a regional practiced at his apartment every week, and I could come over and listen to them play. There were three or four people. One was the janitor from the apartment house, and they played rather quiet music up in his apartment. They had no other place to play. One guy had a tambourine that they called a pendeiro, and another guy had a small guitar. I kept hearing the beat of a drum somewhere, but there was no drum. Finally, I figured out that it was the tambourine, which the guy was playing in a complicated way, twisting his wrist and hitting the skin with his thumb.